0: Israeli government has encouraged the development of a
1: local cyber this industry. products are rated as cyber weapons, and it's only licensed to sell to foreign, foreign governments. Assessing allegations about Pegasus, that it has been pumped. using
0: its technology to target journalists, dissidents, and even high-profile politicians.
2: Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at the Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the stories we're examining this week. A global cyber surveillance scandal, spyware developed in Israel, has put the government there under the media microscope, and its story doesn't add up. Tunisia is one week into a state of emergency. Journalists there are feeling the heat. Handling public relations for governments is lucrative work. For Western PR firms, Africa has emerged as a new hunting ground. And despite being banned from the Olympics, We will rock you. This foreign ministry spokeswoman in Moscow deserves a medal for her spin on the story. It's been a bad couple of weeks for the Israeli cyber espionage firm NSO and for the Israeli government. The revelations about NSO spyware known as Pegasus, the way it's been used on dissidents and journalists, have made international headlines, particularly in the countries affected, leaving Israeli political leaders with some explaining to do. Surveillance tools such as Pegasus are modern-day weapons of war. Since the Israeli government has to sign off on any export deals that NSO makes, it can play the role of gatekeeper, effectively controlling which countries NSO can or cannot sell its spyware to. Both the Israeli government and the company claim that Pegasus is exported only if the client state uses it to fight crime or terrorism, follows the terms and conditions, but the list of NSO's clients features a number of authoritarian governments. And the timing of their deals with NSO tells a different damning story that the criterion is not solely about keeping people safe. It's also about Israeli interests. And it's putting people, perhaps even democracies, in danger. Our starting point this week is Tel Aviv. Usually reporters, like the ones digging into NSO, Pegasus, and phone surveillance, are taught, follow the money. This time was different. They followed the photo ops. They are the smoking guns that tell the story. Wherever former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went, whichever leader he was meeting with, that government would often end up with the Israeli-made spyware that it could then use against whoever it liked, including journalists.
3: Looking at where Netanyahu went is actually a really good barometer of potential Pegasus customers. Uh, We saw Netanyahu visit India, Rwanda, Hungary, Azerbaijan, places he visited that soon afterwards were identified as having Pegasus infections.
0: For example, Hungary, the first numbers are are entered into the database of potential targets, only after Netanyahu visits, with one target actually being, after Netanyahu met the head of the Hungarian security. Rwanda, the gap is, is a bit longer. It takes like a year or two. But we don't see NSO targets or potential people selected as being targets of NSO spyware before their ties with Netanyahu.
3: So what we can deduct from this is that uh, a lot of these trips, a key aspect of them is the discussion of things like, quote-unquote, security and stability, uh, where Israel ingratiates itself to governments by offering very uh, advanced spyware.
2: Israel has the tools to conduct what's come to be known as spy tech diplomacy, the exporting of surveillance equipment that other governments want to get their hands on. It has a powerhouse of a high-tech sector and likes to call itself startup nation. More than $3 billion a year in US financial aid, much of it spent on defense, certainly helps. The Israeli government can also choose which countries companies like NSO can deal with through the selective issuing of export licenses. Which means the Pegasus story isn't just about surveillance. The spyware is a form of diplomatic currency the Israeli government spends to make new friends and forge new alliances through technology whose roots trace back to Israel's military and its surveillance of Palestinians.
1: The Israeli tech sector is based quite a lot on the alumni of the elite Israeli technological units. These people were trained by the best and used during their military service to surveil Palestinians. A lot of times they use the data they gathered in order to extort it or to use against Palestinians in order to come out with additional information.
4: It's no coincidence that Israel has the highest surveillance companies Per capita in the world, it's also not a coincidence that 80% of founders of Israel's cybersecurity companies come from uh, the Israeli military establishment and, and particularly from the IDF intelligence. The Palestinian territories and the Palestinian people have been effectively a testing ground for Israeli technologies, and then we see the disastrous outcome of handing these tools to oppressive regimes around the world to do the same, targeting their own people and their own citizens and and journalists.
3: And what Israel are basically saying is, hey, we are at the forefront of creating this uh, cyber uh, surveillance capability. You won't really get products as good as this anywhere else, nor will you necessarily find regimes who are as amenable to selling those products as us, so please buy them. Um, And that's what spy tech diplomacy is. It's the ability of Israel to produce its hardware to form relationships with other regimes. And crucially, the ability to expand and uh, its influence and foreign policy uh, through this diplomacy.
2: We contacted the Israeli government with questions about Pegasus clients using the spyware to crush democratic forms of dissent and target journalists. We received no reply. The Defence Ministry's line on this echoes NSOs that the government only gives the exporting of Pegasus the green light when the countries buying it use the spyware for security purposes. Try telling that to the family of Jamal Hashoggi, the journalist whose murder at the hands of Saudi operatives came shortly after Pegasus had infiltrated the phones of people close to the victim.
4: It's a ridiculous argument and a ridiculous claim. The Israeli Ministry of Defense has to approve every export of the surveillance technology and has systematically ignored mounting evidence that those technologies are being used to facilitate egregious human rights violations. In the case of Saudi Arabia, there was a pause in the relation between the NSO and Saudi Arabia after the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi back in 2018 at the consulate in Istanbul. And according to reports, The relationship resumed uh, after a direct intervention from from the Israeli government. And
0: if you think about, you know, regional politics, Israelis can't show up in Saudi Arabia. Israelis can't show up in the United Arab Emirates. They certainly cannot sell high-end technology that, you know, may have some security ramifications. They can't sell that to an Arab country unless someone's cleared it. Haaretz has revealed that Israel actually pushed NSO to sell to the Saudis and pushed it to sell to uh, the UAE. So we can see that there's a certain diplomatic alignment between the, the clients and Israel. These lawmakers, they know what's been going on, and they're not really shocked. They're just bummed that, you know, they're reading about it in the newspaper.
2: The prime minister who featured in all those photo ops, Benjamin Netanyahu, is no longer in the job. His successor is Naftali Bennett. Bennett's coalition government has said it's creating a task force to determine if changes are needed to Israel's exporting of cyberware. Task forces take months, if not years, plenty of time for the story to blow over. And investigators are unlikely to tell Bennett, who got rich in the tech sector, anything that he and the world doesn't already know that Israel has peddled spyware to oppressive regimes at the expense of activists, journalists, democratic movements, all while branding itself Startup Nation and the Middle East's only democracy.
1: Israel cooperates with oppressive regimes worldwide and allows export of technologies mostly in secret. The thing is that NSO's tools are no different than when Israel sells Helicopters, planes, guns. It's just another tool which is being sold. And you don't want the burden of being associated with this industry. And a lot of people want uh, to return to the great startup nation and not be an offensive cyber nation who oppresses others.
4: And it's not only about the NSO group, there are many other surveillance companies that export their technologies to democratic and non-democratic countries. And therefore, the best solution would be an immediate moratorium on the sale, transfer and use of surveillance technologies until there is a human rights, a global human rights uh, mechanism in place that would regulate this industry, that would hold uh, companies and governments accountable to human rights abuses uh, related to the use of spyware.
3: If this uh, Pegasus scandal had been created by Iran or or Russia, we would never hear the end of it. How this is a threat to privacy, democracy, and and all that kind of thing. Uh, But because it's Israel, of course, uh, the criticism muted. But I think crucially, the most detrimental aspect of this is how it will have a chilling effect on civil society in the Middle East. Because if people are worried about being watched, they'll behave in a way that's the same as them actually being watched. That's going to discourage journalists, activists, etc., from being critical of the regime and doing some investigative journalism.
2: To Tunisia now, which has been in political turmoil ever since the president declared a state of emergency there, what critics are calling a coup. Flo Phillips has been tracking the impact on the news media, including this network, Al Jazeera.
5: It started last Sunday, Richard, when the president, Kais Saied fired the prime minister and suspended parliament after weeks of protests over the government's handling of the economy and COVID-19. The next day, plainclothes officers entered Al Jazeera's bureau in Tunis, without warrants, ordered everybody out and confiscated the keys. So the office has been shut down. But Al Jazeera's reporters have continued to cover the story, going live from the country's journalist union headquarters, the SNJT. The union has condemned the shutting down of Al Jazeera's office, as have media freedom groups like Reporters Without Borders and the Committee to Protect Journalists.
2: Why would the authorities go after Al Jazeera?
5: It's not clear. The bureau chief, Lotfi Hadji, told us that they hadn't received any official explanation from the authorities. Central to this political crisis is the sidelining of the moderate Islamist party at which controlled Tunisia's parliament. And the leader of the party has denounced the emergency measures put in place by the president, calling his supporters onto the streets. Al Jazeera is one prominent news outlet that Tunisians can hear those kind of criticisms from. But it isn't the only one that's been affected. This past Wednesday, the president dismissed the head of state television, Watania. No reason was given for this, but the channel had grown increasingly editorially independent of the government since Tunisia transitioned to democracy 10 years ago.
2: You're alluding to the Arab Spring. Tunisia is often held up as the only long-term success story in terms of governance, democracy, media freedom. Is all of that now in jeopardy?
5: Well, Tunisia was where the uprisings got their start back in 2010. And once protesters had toppled the former dictator Ben Ali, it was the only country that really managed to form any kind of stable, multi-party democracy. And over the past ten years, Tunisian journalists have enjoyed unprecedented freedom to speak truth to power. All of that, and a good deal more in Tunisia, is now at risk.
2: Thanks, Flo. Depending on what country you live in, some of the messaging coming out of your government today may have been brought to you by a PR company. Public relations firms, many of them based in the U.S. and the U.K., make a lot of money trying to make governments look good, even authoritarian ones. Clients of those firms can be found in Washington, D.C., Riyadh, Tel Aviv, Beijing, among others. But one region where the industry is on the rise is Africa. We've seen its shadowy side exposed in Rwanda, Cameroon, Zimbabwe, South Africa. And those are just the stories that we know about, since PR operatives ply their trade behind the scenes, out of camera range. Usually, that is. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now pulls back the curtain on the secretive world of PR. This week's headliner from Kigali, Rwandan Justice Minister Jackson.
6: February 2021. Rwanda's Justice Minister Johnson Bussigny is in the hot seat on Al Jazeera's Upfront. He's there to address the ongoing trial of a well-known Rwandan dissident who claims he was kidnapped and forced back to the country.
2: Paul Bagina got on a plane and thought he was going to Burundi, but he ended up in Rwanda instead. How did he get there?
5: Boris arrived in Kigali uh, voluntarily uh, on, uh, on uh, a plane. And,
6: uh, he was, uh, the interview was standard news fare, a minister deflecting tough questions, looking to avoid any negative headlines. However, the next day, Johnson Businghe was back on the show.
2: The Justice Minister's team mistakenly sent up front a one and a half hour long recording including a practice interview the minister did with his PR team on how to answer questions about Ruchessa Begina's case. We gave the minister the opportunity to come back on our program and... The video
6: that had been accidentally sent to Al Jazeera provided a rare glimpse behind the curtain of a very secretive industry, the PR firms, in this case the London-based Chelgate, that work with high-profile clients to help shape their public image.
3: Is it news that Rwanda paid for the plane? I've seen it suggested. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen a government person confirm that. So your thoughts? Uh, I should have, for example, said I have no idea who paid?
6: In his second interview, the minister was asked the question again.
2: You do know who paid for the plane that transported Mr. Rusesa Bagina to Rwanda. The conversation you had with your advisors was whether was, was or not close it.
3: Who did? Tell me who did. The government paid
6: it's very revealing that there was this preparation session, and that the talking points were, were fine-grained and specific, and this person was being prepared to advance a particular message.
3: Bits of hard information that you may be the first person to say. I would be cautious about that because it
6: shows the difficult work that journalists have in getting straight answers from uh, public figures. It's a global phenomenon but it does reveal
7: that these PR firms are very, in many cases, very good at what they do. It also shows us the role of of PR firms and the utter reliance that, you know, these politicians in Africa have on on these firms, which they are paying huge amounts of money.
3: He's looking for something that they could put out a press release about the interview or whatever, so Mm they'll be looking for nuggets of hard stuff. It was
7: horrifying to see the way that these pr firms manipulate and try and create a, a, a false message by actually encouraging him to to lie
6: we showed these exchanges between chelgate and the Rwandan government to the public relations and communications association the prca they're the biggest pr oversight body in the world basically they do pr for the pr industry we asked if chelgate violated their ethical standards The answer was yes. It is completely immoral and unethical for public relations professionals to play any part in deceiving the media. I cannot think of any possible way in which advising a dictatorship on how they might best spin the kidnap of a political rival would meet those requirements. Despite the existence of organizations like the PRCA, the industry functions without any meaningful regulation in the countries where they operate. Chelgate is just one of many Western PR firms taking on contracts with African governments. Others include Mercury Public Affairs and BTP advisors. Their staffs often include former government officials and corporate insiders who bring deft communication skills to manage the message for their clients. One of the things that Chelgate was at pains to deny when we put this to them. The minister at no point deceived the media and Chelgate offered no advice that he should do so. That statement would appear to be at odds with their own
3: interview preparation. You don't always need to answer the question because you can actually change the, the you, you can actually spin uh, uh, a topic that's raised by the interviewer and you can move it to something else.
6: Rwanda isn't the only African country taking advice. Business is booming across the region. While PR work for African governments is often well-intentioned, improving messaging on health, tourism, and public safety, collaborations with authoritarian leaders are widespread, very well-paid, and often take place in the shadows. Take Cameroon. The West African nation is run by the continent's oldest leader, a man who cares about his image.
8: Paul Biya is Africa's most calm despot. Um, And for... 38 years, he has ruled a country whose narrative in the West is the bastion of peace. It is important for Paul Bia to showcase an image that is a country where foreign direct investment can come in, a country where we can attract our allies and ensure that we don't get international sanctions. Cameroon alone has spent $3.6 million dollars Um, between 2006 and 2017 on Western PR firms. So the Western PR firms are attracted by money and they're attracted by the relationship that they can build with these uh, governments to be able to continue to mine interest in those countries.
6: Paul Bia's government has relied heavily on US-based PR firms to manage his and his country's international reputation. One firm, Clout Public Affairs, was paid $660,000 between 2019 and 2020. The objective? Promoting a positive and favorable image of the government through strategic media work, including op eds and conservative outlets. We contacted Clout Public Affairs and asked about their work with the BIA government. We received no response. It's a similar story in Zimbabwe, which recently transitioned out of nearly 40 years under Robert Mugabe. Its current president, Emerson Menangagwa, has hired firms like the UK-based BTP Advisors and Mercury Public Affairs, headquartered in the United States, to rebrand the government's tattered image and that of its
7: long-standing ruling party, the ZANU-PF. The PR firms, either in Washington or in London, they're working very hard to try and, you know, paint a good picture of the Zimbabwean regime, despite the uh, realities on the ground. We've also seen pieces in, in, in respectable papers, which look like PR pieces, to be honest, because they paint a very unrealistic picture of the Zimbabwean situation. Zimbabwe is now open for business. Zimbabweans have known Emerson Munangagwa for 41 years. He was the chief enforcer of the Mugabe regime. So they can be fooled by what the PR machine is trying to do. Hiring PR firms to control
6: narratives is standard practice. But the reliance on Western PR firms by some African states to burnish their profiles is confounding when you realize they're often partnering with former colonizers.
8: African despots will continue to pander to the West, irrespective of the fact that most of the time, they do complain that Western governments are interfering. Cameroon was colonized by the French and the English, so there is that language affinity there. Also, France has a lot of interest in Cameroon, especially in the utilities corporations. And so that continued interest is something that uh, sends the government towards these colonial
5: masters.
6: That Bell Pottinger will help PR contracts are multiplying across the continent but so too is public scrutiny.
5: Client shareholders and investors are deserting PR giant Bell Pottinger.
6: In 2017, one of the world's largest PR firms, Bell Pottinger, found itself in the middle of a major South African political scandal, accused of stoking racial hatred on behalf of its client, a prominent business family with close connections to the government. Bell Pottinger was exposed, went bankrupt and was forced to shut down. However, these moments of accountability are rare because this is an industry that's been incredibly successful at keeping its work under wraps. It's not every day you get
2: to see a video that exposes the inner workings of the PR industry. And finally, to the Olympic Games, where thousands of athletes are competing for medals and there's not a Russian flag to be seen. That's because Russia is still banned from the Olympics after it was found to be running a huge doping program, which it's always denied. A limited number of Russian athletes are allowed to compete in Tokyo though, not as Team Russia, but as the ROC, the Russian Olympic Committee, and they're not allowed to play the Russian national anthem. The PR apparatchiks at the Kremlin are not taking this lying down. The woman you're about to see beating up on the international media almost literally, is Maria Zakharova. She's a spokeswoman for the Russian Foreign Ministry. And what she delivers is like a counter-narrative on steroids. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.
4: Добрый день, уважаемые коллеги. Давайте начнем с вопросов. Пожалуйста. На Олимпиаду мы едем в нейтральном статусе. Ваша реакция? Статус – ничто. Самое главное – сила духа наших спортсменов. И в мире об этом знают.
7: Американцы опасаются, что русские хакеры приложат свою руку к грядущим играм.
4: Отличное оправдание для собственных поражений. Но тогда пусть и свои победы тоже списывают на русских хакеров. А что бы вы хотели передать нашим спортсменам в Токио? А нашим спортсменам в Токио я хотел бы передать, ребята, мы вас любим, мы в вас верим, мы желаем вам побед. И хочется процитировать зарубежных партнеров и всем вместе сказать «We will rock you» из России с любовью.